Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never Mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. So um, today we've got uh, someone who came to see us together as the Source Full of Secrets. Not your mother. Right, <laughs> <laughs> She always shows up in Chicago. Why Chicago? I have no idea. I keep telling it's 12-hour flight. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, I think you're talking about Billy Corgan, aren't you? I am talking about Billy Corgan. He did. I was quite thrilled when he came. He came to see us. I, I always like it when people come to see us that you you're sort of slightly impressed by, and then you think about them the whole time. Have you noticed that when you're on stage, if anyone comes to see you that you're you know you're slightly impressed by, you you think about them every yeah, other. No, that's true. But I like it when it's someone you're slightly impressed by. I prefer it when it's not someone I'm impressed by who plays my instrument. Because then, <laughs> that's just yeah, you like to show off. Then I know, um, uh-huh. you know. I think I think um, you know what this guy did. Uh, basically, these these all these American bands in the nineties, they just took it away from the British, didn't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it was the rebirth of the guitar. Certainly, it was. Um, as yeah. actually, so much for that. That's trivialising it. But anyway, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at game. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Billy. Hi. Where are you, Billy? I'm in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. Oh, okay. Is that where you are now? Or? No, no, I'm, I'm still in Chicago. So Chicago is, uh, it was your home, is your home though, isn't it? It's where we met yeah. you, where we saw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's where you guys play. It was a fun show. That was a fun show. We liked doing it. So where to begin? You guys are the professionals here. I'm the, I'm the do novice. You know what I, do you know what I want, to, want to talk about briefly? is because um, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, looking at your history, knowing the band that I used to play in our history, knowing Pink Floyd's history, and, you know, the story, the myth and legend that surrounds bands of of how you met on the street and being friends and then being devoted to each other and being that true gang, and then the inevitable breakups and smash-ups and getting back together and reconciliations and then falling apart again and all of those stories, which I think is what makes a band brilliant. You know, you look at bands like U2 uh, and they've never had anything like that or Coldplay. It's just been, you know, just the music and the same and the same and the same. And I find that completely uninteresting. Or you get the weird thing like when we we spoke to Roland Orzabal last week and they... Had the, had the inevitable schism, and then they got together, got back together, and made an album called "Everyone Likes a Happy Ending," and they're still together. <laughs> yeah, but they don't spend any time in the, when they're on tour. They hate each other and have separate dressing That's rooms. Right. We don't have that. But it's kind of your story, isn't it, Billy? Yeah, you know, we we really tried to be the anti-cliche, and we became the cliche, which is which is quite sad in its own way. But um, 
I think now the story is one of endurance. The fact that we've been able to kind of put it back together and go back to making music at a high level. I think that's become like part of the new chapter of the, of the, of this long, crazy story. So who works together now, Billy? Who, who from the crew is working? Well, we have you? three, we have three of the four original members. Oh, um, and, uh, you know, from our perspective, you know, we were the primary record makers. So, you know, the public likes a, likes a full family and we get that. But as far as we're concerned, you know, we're at, we're at full functioning capacity. So it's, it's James and, and Jimmy? Yeah, yeah, James and Jimmy. Darcy's not with you right now, right? No, no, Darcy, Darcy uh, quit and or was fired in 1999. And I literally have not seen her since. We kind of, we kind of uh, tried to make up on the phone. We had conversations for a couple of years, which invariably led to maybe her rejoining. And then that went south and became a big public meme spectacle as you do these days, um, which was unfortunate. But since we're, since we're, you know, we're kind of here, connect here in Pink Floyd land. I mean, I had the distinction of inducting Pink Floyd in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I had to read Roger's statement on stage. So, you know, that we have these, we have these moments where it's like, you can't, you can't put all the pieces back together, you know? I want, no, I wanted to mention that because I, obviously I watched your speech for this, because of course I, I you know, re remembering that, which was a fantastic, beautifully considered speech. I Thank you. Say. I didn't see Roger's statement. I, I, um, but, Maybe they uh, cut that part out, but they they, they yeah. gave me a piece of paper and said you must read this. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and how was it? Was it was it, it was very? Yeah, I know Roger was it a little of bit. Spleen and bile. <laughs> it, was, it was very Roger like. <laughs> okay. It was. I don't remember being very tender and warm. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Although it's because I noticed everyone name checked him. Everyone in the band thanked him by name, which is which is probably. You gritted teeth at that point. Um, I don't know whether this will get cut out when we when we when it goes to air, but um, but I do. You know, my my when Roger joined us on stage with Sourceful of Secrets in New York, uh, which was amazing and fantastic, and and I and I said to him, I said, you know, Roger, I just want to say thank you for doing this for us. This is amazing. And he went, I didn't do it for you. I did it for me. <laughs> and I, you know, good or bad, that's that's incredible honesty. That's, well, that's know, what this game's about. Roger gonna Roger. Um, just one last thing when we're on that, Billy, is, is, did you, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't ask or who, who suggested that you do the induction? You know, um, at the time they told me that it was an idea of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they had cleared it with Pink Floyd. So I was very touched and honored because, you know, Wish You Were Here was one of those songs that got me through one of the most difficult periods of my youth. And it's still a great honor when I look back on it to, to have been on that stage with them. Um, and it's a shame that it, Roger wasn't there, but I got to work with Roger on a charity thing once. And so I know him a little bit. So I've been lucky to basically be around them all. It was your, your grandmother died at the time, I think. Yeah, it was really tough. My grandmother was dying of cancer when I was 17. And you wish you were here was that song that just, it just, it just went right to the core of what I was experiencing. And I still sing the song to this day. And it's a special band that makes a song like that, like Strawberry Fields by the Beatles or something. It's like the song never gets old. I can hear it a million times. And I, I, I never turn it off. It's one of those songs you just got to take the ride every time. And it is one of those kind of, no, but it's like that and Comfy Number, the two. It's just hairs on the back of your neck every time. It's just that never, ever goes away. And surely shine on you, Crazy Diamond, as well, guys, right? Yeah, but your hairs can't stay out that long. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me just say that you, you know, well, you love British music, don't you? And that's that's kind of what's obvious in in the in the music you make. And I think that's what set you apart from a lot of the other you know American bands at the time. And dare I say the word grunge? That the bands that were coming out of. I was going to not the G word. No, I the G word. Your scene had a lot more Britishness running through its veins. Your thing, apparently, was it when you started the band? You were very much into like New Order and The Cure. Well, and Black Sabbath and Pink Floyd and the Beatles. Okay. And, yeah. and we weren't supposed to like any of those bands. You know, you yeah. would do it in an interview and you'd say, they'd say, what do you listen to? And you'd say those bands and they would make the little frowny hipster face, you know, like, <laughs> how could you be so stupid to like these bands? And we, we were hugely influenced by uh, British alternative music and, um, you know, of course, British classic rock, Judas Priest, you know. And so for us, it was a, it was a no brainer. But to to a lot of our American patriots, compatriots, it was very strange. Our set of influences. I think you probably had a hand in kind of rehabilitating all that music. I mean, even I, my eyebrows went up when you said Boston. <laughs> you know, I, you're, you're a, absolutely right. I mean, Boston is kind of like the ABBA of sort of rock, isn't it? I mean, it's that. But we, you know, we talked about. I mean, at the time we started talking about Black Sabbath, Boston, Led Zeppelin, Queen. These were all every all the bands were out of vogue. They were all considered passe and everybody would make the frowny face. And it's even the electric light orchestra. And yeah. um, and here we are now, they're all considered 
classic legendary bands and, and everybody's happy to hear them. So it was, it was an interesting journey to take because for us, it was a no brainer. These were our heroes and these were the people that inspired us. But we grew up in a world with this like a weird peer pressure to not like that type of music. The mainstream for you then was kind of was hair metal, wasn't it, in America? Yeah, but 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 even like I think 89, you had Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, which was kind of like the beginning of this new kind of rock. You know, Motley Crue had been around for a bit. Metallica was huge. Um, so there was something happening in the American underground. We were influenced by those things, too. Um, again, not not things that you would akin to alternative music. And, and anytime we would mention it, we get we get a lot of flack for it. You know, if I'm going to generalize and, I, you know, we love generalizing in rock music, um, but but the theatrical bands that were based it, that came out of America, like, say, Alice Cooper or Kiss and those those sort of hair bands, there was always a tongue in cheek element to what the, to the way they presented themselves, where I think people like Bowie and 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 the bands like Queen and Freddie, you know, people that were doing theater from Britain took it so seriously. This this might be a character I'm playing, but he's not got his tongue in cheek. I might be wearing makeup, but I mean every ounce of it. And I think you took that on board, didn't you? Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of irony. It's, it seems to be an American trait where everything has to be super self-deprecating. I'm not talking about Monty Python self-deprecation. I'm talking about, you know, willful, you know, every, everybody's got to take the piss all the time on everything in American uh, life, especially when it concerns success. We've all seen the interview. You know, you won the big game. Well, gee, you know, I, I just got lucky and I want to thank my team. And nobody believes a word of it, but, but they still are very connected to it emotionally. This, this kind of story of humility and it, America's the most cutthroat place in the world. <laughs> it's like yeah. part of the American mythos, you know, behind the scenes, everybody's bloodthirsty and cutthroat, but out front of the camera, everyone plays nice. It's very strange. I mean, I guess it's fear, isn't it? It's fear of being found out. It's fear, fear of being laughed at. I mean, even Bruce, though, has 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 theatre. I guess Bruce is the one who takes it with complete seriousness, this blue-collar guy that he plays. From but but, but in, in credit to, in, you're talking about Bruce Springsteen, I assume, in credit to him, if you watch his Broadway show, the one-man show, in the first five minutes of that, he admits that he's playing a character. Yeah, he's not actually the character in any of his songs. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked him and admired him. He's certainly one of the great American songwriters, but I've never had more respect for him than in the first five minutes of that monologue because he admitted to the whole artifice of what he'd done. Um, and that's what, I, that's what I mean about America. It's very particular. It's like people want to believe in Bruce Springsteen, so they do. And, and maybe a Bruce Springsteen figures out that's the character that he needs to play to continue to get whatever they're, they're giving him. Um, I, I always rejected all that. I hated all that. I, I, I wanted to kind of, I guess it was more influenced by Bowie or something, sort of like put it on, wear it for one season and t tear it off and put on something else. But it's a, but your appeal to your audience early on was certainly, I mean, it was very much bearing your soul. It wasn't, it? it's your, it's your audience felt very much a direct communication with you, with your words and stuff, you know, in a, in a sort of Morrissey-esque yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I stumbled on a weird thing where I, I, I made a first album with kind of hazy psychedelic stuff in it. And I was taken to task by someone for not writing more honest lyrics. And I went through this massive depression. And, and out of that, I started writing these super direct confessional lyrics. At least that's what it felt like at the time. And somehow it connected with the zeitgeist of the moment. It was very strange. It was nothing calculated. It was strictly a kind of an emotional journey that I took. It was like stepping on something. And once it went off, it was crazy. It was like, and still to this day, I mean, people are still talking to me about those songs and how it shaped or would gave that, them inspiration. That be Siamese, is that Siamese Dream? Yes, yeah, Siamese Dream. That was our second album in 1993. It's such a, it's a similar story to, because we had Roland Orzabal on the show last week, and, uh, you know, he told the same, similar story with, with, with his album when they, you know, he, he, it was about getting out all of that stuff that had happened to him as a child and suddenly having a, a voice to express himself through. And I was one of the people listening. I mean, that, that his work in that period was, we rode around in cars and we sang those songs at the top of our lungs because it was like somebody was speaking for us. Yeah, yeah. So but is, is, was Billy Corgan a character? I mean, you know, you call yourself, <laughs> you call yourself w w William Patrick Corgan on your solo albums. But is, is, was he a character in your mind? Did it, was it, in a, in a way, could you step into him and then step on stage and then and only then be brave enough to say the things you really felt? You know, um, this is a bit of a digression, but, you know, when I was young, you know, my father was a musician. And so I grew up in an alternative culture, very multi, you know, uh, racial, multicultural. So I had a larger perspective of the world. And then I would go into suburban life and, and get this very limiting thing. You know, you're too, you're, you're too weird. Your thoughts are too big. And I think 
unconsciously, I started to play an alternative version of myself in school, but it wasn't anything that was conscious. It was like I'd be one person there and one person at home. When, when our first album came out and was actually quite successful, I, I started facing criticism like I'd never faced in my life. I wasn't emotionally equipped to deal with it. So I started kind of inventing, like, I, I, I don't know, it's like, I'm, it's, it sounds strange to put, but it's like, this other guy started answering all the questions. And he, and he like wrestling or something. It's like he, he was louder than I was and he said crazy things I wouldn't say. And, and, it, and it was, became this enveloping loop of attention and controversy. And, and it just, it seemed naturally, natural to kind of become this, this character. Um, the, the second album was probably most akin to me as sort of like, you know, like version A and version B. But by the third album, I was off. I was off into like Bowie land where I was playing somebody I, I wasn't. I want to touch on this on a musical side, right? Right, on the lyrical side. Because there's a thing that you did, because you've got such a fantastic, distinctive guitar identity. There's that beautiful thing. And the, the interesting thing is what one associates with the, the G word is that thing of, um, of like quiet verses and noisy choruses. But what you did, one thing that I really, really love, and this became a trademark of a lot of bands afterwards, was that thing of writing songs, which are musically really quite gentle and quite major, but with unbelievably heavy guitars. <laughs> The song and the intent is not heavy. It's just the guitars are super yeah. heavy. And it's not being reflected in the vocal or in the yeah. or in the sentiment, you know, which is a fantastic thing. In the same way as people say, like, like the well, McCartney and Lennon worked because Paul would be really light and John would be really dark. And there's other things of having happy music and sad lyrics all the other way around. Sure. So but your thing was that of having really intense, sonically really intense, but not actually emotionally intense or or lyrically intense. It's a fantastic brilliant mix that it's like one of the last great new things in rock and roll i would say so yeah we we just kind of stumbled across it it wasn't again nothing conscious we just kind of gravitated that way you know we're you know as you do when you're playing clubs you know you people are talking <laughs> so there's only one way to shut them up is which is just to play louder because you know the other person i heard say that in a documentary and this is in 1963 was pete townsend who said their <laughs> whole thing was just as like there's no chatting up birds <laughs> yeah, I, I have a distinct memory of being on stage somewhere in 1989 and watching people talk at the bar and saying, you're not fucking talking tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we, 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 had, um, we had Johnny Marr on and, you know, Johnny was saying, you know, the thing with the Smiths was it was this really sweet guitar, you know, happy guitar, yeah, exactly. these super dark lyrics. And I think that's what draw, draws people to you. But the flip side, obviously, is what Guy's saying. But the, your layering of guitar became your sound, didn't it? It wasn't the one guitar you were you were trying to create cathedrals flying buttresses of guitars that, that yeah. architecturally built this sonic sound yeah i i mean i think that you know roy thomas baker told me a wonderful story about queen's first album had come out and they got a bunch of stuff in the press basically saying they were a novelty band and roy's story was that freddie's reaction was oh they want novelty i'll show them novelty and then he went way overboard which is how we got yeah. queen too which is one of my favorite albums and I think I did a similar thing, you know, years before I ever heard the story, which is like, oh, if you think we're contrived now, I'm going to give you contrived. I'll give you, you know, bales and, and whales of guitar. I mean, you know, 12 guitars on a track all fuzzed out. And, but it's also you know, it's that, that particular really fat MIDI sound, which is so funny enough. I had a friend, Jimmy Corty, who, uh, for, who used to be in the KLF, and he did a lot of remixes in the 90s. It's that well, and 12 inches, when because every record was made into a 12 inch, whether it deserved it or not. And I think yeah, he yeah. did some of yours. Because um, he actually, and I remember him saying, you just love it when you get an American record to mix because the guitars are just so much better recorded. Yeah, we, we, we <laughs> don't have box amps you know, over. We use English producers, you know. <laughs> but I didn't get Adam, Adam Mulder. Yeah. We're, yeah we're, we're Marshall people, you know, we're not Vox people, you know. Right. I remember we would play festivals with some of the English fans, you know, and we, we you know, we, we spy their gear from the side of the stage and they hit Vox and like, oh, they're dead. <laughs> the thing is, as well, Billy, you were, you were kind of, you were actually ready to accept the guitar as a guitar hero fit tool. You know, you, your solo on Cherub Rock or, you know, it, it's, it's distinguished where it, this isn't a time when no one was playing guitar solos, really. Well, not good yeah. ones, unless they were just doing the virtuoso shred thing. Well, you know, you, you know the, the, the emblematic solo of the age is, is, you know, how Kurt Cobain would play solos. It would almost yeah. be he'd make, he'd make fun of solo. He'd, make, he'd play a solo by making fun of a solo. We went completely the opposite way into kind of virtuosity, having grown up on, you know, Yngwie Malmsteen and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yes. the solo that sp springs to mind as being the beginning of all of that is, is, uh, is on boredom, the Buzzcocks. 
the, the you know the, the solo it's just two notes all the way through you know or even Neil, Neil Young and Cinnamon Girl one note right yeah well someone actually I thought I said it was Spin or someone once did a top ten of uh, the greatest one note guitar solos of all time and there is and it's and there is a definitive top ten it's got this I can see for Miles is on there and there's yeah there's, there's loads you've got they've just not got a scratch on their vinyl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So let, tell me the, your, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the British bands that you loved, Billy, but, and, and your dad being a guitar player, but what was your sort of Damascene moment as far as music was concerned? Do you, do you, do you remember that? The moment that you, you had this vision in front of you. That's that, it. That's the, this is my music. These are my people. Yeah. yeah like for me, it was Bowie on, on top of the pops doing stuff. Oh, I see. Um, See, I, I didn't really have that because my father was a musician. So from an early stage, I was in clubs, you know, at Soundcheck, you know. What was he actually doing? Musician? Uh, he was he was a guitar player in, in a lot of local bands, very talented musician. And so, you know, I'd be tagged along for Soundcheck and have to sit there and listen and then play, you know, whatever the hell they would play in 1974 or something, you know. So my 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 impression of music came through my father's eyes, both he being a professional musician, but also every time somebody was on television, I had to hear he's good. She's bad. They're great. They're terrible. And here's why. So I got this constant meta breakdown of everything. Um, and how did you learn? How did you actually learn the guitar? So I, when I decided I wanted to play guitar around the age of 14, my family was completely against it. Um, he tried to talk me out of it. I got the guitar and then uh, he came over and gave me one five minute lesson. Here's how you hold your hands. Here's how you hold the pick. Here's how you play House of the Rising Sun goodbye, and he was gone. Was he afraid you were going to get better than him or something? Or? Um, we've had a very interesting uh, relationship. I think in the beginning, you know, his his initial reluctance was he had a very hard go with music, and he just assumed I would have a worse go. Um, when I became successful, his thinking, I think, was I'm more talented than my kid, so how is my kid succeeding when I didn't? He must have gotten lucky. And then eventually he wound around to the fact that I, I was talented and I was good at my job and he's been great and supportive ever since. But it's been, been a very strange journey that way. I mean, to go from being completely ne neglected to, you know, my father on drugs telling me he should write my songs instead of me, you know, just really, really weird journey. I'm glad we're on the other side of that. But that, that was a weird, that was a weird one. He's still around. Oh yeah, he's still around. I mean, John um, Lennon had the same thing, didn't he? His dad had neglected him and then came back into his life and, and, and used him to make his own records, you know. I don't remember, I don't know that story, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very painful because, you know, every kid wants to be recognized by their parents. And um, my mother was very supportive. Um, she got it. And, and uh, even though we, I didn't grow up with my mother, but she was very supportive. But my father, he just thought it was the worst decision in the world. He, he couldn't have been against it more. <laughs> Then you find your, you know, your, your bandmates. You've, it, was, was, it was James first, wasn't it? You were writing stuff together. Yeah, we, we were mutual friends with this guy. He was like a, a factory worker by night and kind of a goth musician by day. So we had this kind of little goth trio for half a second. And that's how James and I met. And um, in the beginning, it was just him and I in the drum machine in the bedroom probably for about six months. And then we met Darcy. I got into an argument with her on the street. Totally random. How it started is how it, how it ended. I got I got in a free ticket to see a band called the John Butcher Axis, and all apologies to John Butcher because he when we got big he of course the story was repeated and I think he was very offended but um, I just <laughs> thought the band was terrible and and I and I was standing outside it was a hot night and I was outside this club kind of catching my breath or something and I heard this woman behind me saying oh what a wonderful show I thought it was so great and I rolled around and my first word out of my mouth was are you crazy you know like how can you think the show was good and our first literally our first moment of meeting was an argument <laughs> yeah, so, i've got to say you know and listen bass players uh you know i'd, I'd like to think famously non-argumentative non-confrontational no this is this is a different breed of bass player we're talking about yeah. and then so J jimmy turns up and um who, who seems like from a very different kind of place than you guys yeah jimmy jimmy had no knowledge of alternative music at all he didn't even know there was an alternative musical world what was he um, doing he was playing in basically like a wedding band Right, right. That seems like a real, you know, match made in heaven. It's just, just clearly oh, the, the guy. For you know, the, no. the first time he showed up to audition, the other two were making eyes at me like, no fucking way, no way, no way. And I was just impressed that he learned the songs we sent him on a demo. And we had, we had a couple gigs booked that we needed a drummer for. So I was like, you know, just let him play the gigs and, you know, we'll find somebody else. Well, lo and behold, he turned out to be one of the greatest drummers of all time. And it didn't take me long to figure out that, Anything you could throw at the guy, he could play. It was it was savant like. 
he knew right. and and he and by and I met him when he was probably about 24 years old and he knew every great fill of every great drummer you know and if and you of course you know who I'm talking about whether it's Ian Pace or John Bonham or Neil Peart if you if you if you could say the song he could play the fill perfect and in Chicago in 1980 whatever 8 there weren't a lot of guys who could play Ian Pace you know the yeah, beginning yeah, yeah. of fireball or what i mean it was it was you would look and say this is impossible and i would i would try to think of stuff he couldn't do and there's nothing i could think of that he couldn't do so the right. band started shifting into this kind of heavier direction because now i had the synthesis i had a band before that tried to synthesize kind of british alternative music and, and kind of heavier music i kind of gave it up because it was a complete failure but when jimmy came to the band it, it kind of rekindled my thought that maybe these th two things could be put together so we started kind of wheeling towards heavier music almost immediately and within probably six months, the crowd started to grow and the reaction started to grow. So we were on to something. Do you think there was a kind of osmosis happening around the country? The fact that, that you know, there was that there was this bubbling generation of bands who were to come. You know, I think one of the underestimated things, like if you look at the history of um, British alternative music, Joy Division is one of the most seminal bands um, to come out of alternative music. Peter Hook was influenced by Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Right. But you don't, you know, people don't talk about that because it's not in their in their frame. They want to talk about the weird thing that happened. They don't want to talk about an influence that goes against their fantasy. So I think you have the same thing. We all grew up on 70s radio. So Kurt Cobain and Tom Morello and Adam from Tool, you know, Adam and Tom are basically from the same area I'm from. We all grew up on Black Sabbath and then the Cars and then Pink Floyd. You know, so th this was all in our DNA. But the funny thing is, because there's a funny thing with influences, is like, is like, for instance, yes, I mean, I've, I've heard Hooky talk about, you know, he talks about Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. But then, but that's, you, that doesn't, on a conscious level, inform his playing. You don't hear that in his playing. In the same way as if you listen to early Pumpkins, it, you don't really hear New Order or, you know what I mean? It's, it's so, yeah. so what, what informs you doesn't necessarily inform your music. No, but I yeah. think what you do hear with, with early pumpkins is is definitely melody. Are we going to fall out over this? The kind of melody that you would have in, in with in British bands like The Cure or bands that were coming coming yeah, through. Yeah, no, I guess I'm thinking more sonically. That's but, all. But and I guess as well, Billy, you would have. I mean, listen, I was part of that first British invasion of or second British invasion, as they call it, in the eighties. I'm not saying you were anyway directly influenced by Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, but British acts coming over onto MTV because I remember at the time in the 80s going to America, there were no American new acts, you know, the bands. It was, there were solo artists that were doing really well in, you know, but it, it wasn't any bands. And it, it took the next step. It took, you know, this generation. Yeah. Well, to, I was amazed. It, I mean, when I was touring America with Pink Floyd in like 87, 88, I was amazed that, that MTV was, because when you looked around, you just thought they just listened to Van Halen and Bon Jovi, but then MTV was completely colonized by it. Was just New Order and The Cure. That was that was you know. It's hard. To, I, I think it's a great question. I think, and it's hard to to say what what put those pieces together. But around 1988, 89, there just seems to be this swing towards heavier music. It was Mud Honey and, and Nirvana, Soundgarden, and and even in in Chicago uh, was influenced by there were bands out of Minneapolis like uh, a band like Soul Asylum which are kind of playing heavier but almost yeah, yeah. replacements almost like heavier three chord rock you know like the amps turned up but still kind of straightforward songs I, I don't know it just seemed to be in the air at the time Butch Vig did your first record or second yeah. record first, first two first and two. actually first and second yeah I think Nevermind hadn't come out it was at the same time was he that was he you kind of had him before. Well, what, what happened was um, we were recording our first album while he was getting the job to do Nirvana. He'd already done some demos for them and they came back to do what became the Nevermind album. So he literally left from our album, went right to the to do Nevermind. And so we were one of the first people to hear the record because he had come back home to Wisconsin. And we went up to see him for some reason and we were sitting on a lakefront and I think it was like a fourth of July. And he's like, do you want to hear the new Nirvana and you know, press his play on the cassette? And the first song you hear is Teen Spirit. And my first reaction was, wow, this is really great. My second reaction was, wow, you stole my guitar sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and he kind of got this look on his face because, you know, I had this very specific, I very, very much based on Tony Iommi in Boston by extension and Queen. So the first time I heard Nirvana, I looked at him, I was like, wow, you just ripped off what I just did. You know, that's history. That's how it works. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Finish off yeah. that moment. Did you say anything? Did you walk away? Did you carry it around with you? Well, I think I, think I realized, you know, maybe unconsciously, um, and we were also with Butch by chance the night that uh, Nevermind went to number one which with the way the charts worked back then, even if you had the most sales, you weren't necessarily number one. It had to like work up through some sort of weird system. It combined with radio play as well or something. Yeah, it was some kind of weird thing where, so even though like two weeks before Nirvana had the biggest selling record, they were still like number six or something. So we happened to be with Butch the night that Nirvana officially went number one and you knew that the whole world had changed. But going back to that moment of first hearing the album, sitting by a lakeside on a 4th of July, I mean, you couldn't help but recognize that something was, you know, something was in the air. Now, did we, did we think it was going to be as big as we thought, as, as, as anybody? It turned out to be absolutely not. There was no way. I mean, it was so much bigger than, you know, like Depeche Mode had played the Rose Bowl and the Cure had done big things. You know, they'd have these kind of like little moments of like the rocket goes up and the rocket comes down. No one had ever seen anything like that in our generation of this sustained assault on the mainstream. And, you know, we, we simultaneously killed off hair metal in one fell swoop. And overnight it was like, you know, every, I mean, it was like, I'm sure it was like that in the sixties, you know, with, with the Beatles and stuff like that. It was just like overnight, everything changed. It was just like, boom. So you could feel it, but it, until it happened, you didn't really believe it. Yeah. I was living in LA at the time when your album came out actually. And I, I remember that album being huge. Your, you know, the Simon, Simon, yeah. huge yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah, it was wild. It was it was a wild time, and and you know, obviously the dynamics are different. Um, you know, it's 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 fun to speculate like where we would fit into this into this modern world. I think it would still be a big record, but um, yeah, it was strange because suddenly, you know, you, I mean, we literally went from working at a sushi joint and a record store to now you're on MTV twenty times a week and you're getting recognized in airports. And you know, we were twenty five, twenty six years old. It was wild. It was wild. And so uh, that was big touring after that, right? Yeah, we, I mean, we, we ended that year headlining Lollapalooza. The original plan was to have Nirvana, uh, Pumpkins, and Beastie Boys um, beat Lollapalooza. And then, of course, Kurt died. And then so we ended up being pushed in the headline squat, slot. That was wild. It was, you know, I mean, you talk about going into middle America at the height of MTV, 1994. And I was, you know, 26 years old, 27. I was not prepared for that at all. And, of course, The Simpsons. <laughs> oh, Yeah. 
I've... What happened on The Simpsons? Well, that's what, well funny enough, we, this is the second time we've talked about this very episode of The Simpsons, because we spoke to Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton, yeah, my, my, my <laughs> Simpsons mate. I've, I've never met Peter, but um, big fan. And uh, yeah, the great, the great moment in my, in my life with The Simpsons was they, they contacted me and said, okay, well, you've shaved your head, so do you want to have no hair in the episode, or do you want to have hair? <laughs> and I knew I had a scene with Homer, and I said, well, I'd rather have hair because there'd be two ball guys talking, so... <laughs> they gave me uh, gave me hair for the episode. What color was it? Uh, I think it was black. I had dyed my hair black occasionally around that time, but they had me in the zero shirt, and and of course that's the famous uh, Homer Simpson smiling politely line because yeah. I say Billy Corgan smashing pumpkins, and his his answer is uh, Homer Simpson smiling politely. And to this day, <laughs> I walk through airports and I hear people shout the line out. You know, that's when you know you've made the cultural zeitgeist. You know, one of my ki- this is honestly only last week, but my kid has been watching everything on the Disney Channel, every single episode of The Simpsons. I'm talking about my nine year old and, uh, during lockdown when he, when he should be working, obviously. And, uh, and then one point last Peter's week, he's not like, listening. Dad, Dad, you're on The Simpsons, you know, and, and they, they were, it was someone dancing to one of my songs, you know. It's oh, wow. Did you, did you know that? I did, I did know because we've, we've been in three episodes. Uh, this oh, is wow. a competition. But I've never had my drawing in there. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, it was funny. My n- nine-year-old then suddenly realized that I, you know, I was something out there in the music business that was important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all important. Let, let's just talk about how mad you were to have this, I mean, incredible desire to make a double album for your you yeah, I, no, this i'm dying i'm dying I'm, to get I'm just gonna step back and say actually you're one of the lucky bands in that your second album which is normally everyone's worst album turns out to be an inf- a phenomenal record right and but that gives you the balls to make your quadrophenia to make your wall the wall and do it and do what is an extraordinary double album i mean the record company must have been freaking out well you yeah, did they, actually they, say it was the wall for generation x didn't you wasn't it i yeah, that was one of my that was one of my sales lines on, on the back end of it. <laughs> I went to the record company. And I said, I want to make a double album. They said, Absolutely not. You're coming off this massive record. Double albums don't sell. It's career suicide. And then when they saw that I was going to do it, then they said, Okay, well we have to split it up like Guns and Roses. There'll be a, a part one and a part two. And I oh, said, Absolutely not. I fought that battle and won that battle. And then it was a it was a wild journey after that because I think we worked eight months straight to uh, to make the record. So you've got two producers, right? You've changed. You've got um, Alan Mulder and Flood. And here's the thing I love, because as a bass player, where working on albums, time management is a problem, because it's true, because you're just sitting around, they're setting up drums, you're just doing endless guitar overdubs, they're getting synths as well. So you have this production line thing going, which is which seems so brilliant, that kind of you just have little rooms and everyone's doing their bit in different rooms, so everyone's always got something to do. Yeah, but the problem was I was playing most of the st- stuff, so <laughs> it sounded good on paper, but it didn't work out that way. I did read that bit, and then I thought, yeah, but I've got a feeling with Billy, the truth is he played every instrument. How do, can I just, just stop on that a moment? Because the fact that you famously are very strong in the studio, and you have a very driven opinion, and you want to play all the instruments, how does that work? With It, it, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it's never worked. I mean, in the beginning, it was it was a producer's call because Butch wanted to make the strongest record. And he said to the band, he's got to play this stuff because you guys can't play up to this level and da da da. Then it became kind of a thing. And then it and then once it kind of split the band in a very unhealthy way, then it became almost proprietary. Well, I, you know, I see it this way and and I, you know, I turned into that guy. Um, it wasn't it wasn't healthy for the band, but um, it's just the way it worked out. I don't know what I would do differently. You know, I because. It is what it is. So Jimmy was the only other guy playing on on the record, mostly. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's not fair to say that nobody played anything, but I, you know, by and large, what people identify as the sound of the band is is essentially mostly me and Jimmy. The everybody yeah. contributed, but it was in some cases it was emotional, it was spiritual, it was tonal, um, even like a vibe or a tempo. But the real work fell on me, and then at some point it became really like a like a like a like a millstone around my neck. I, I, I really started to regret the decision. And, and, and not only did it divide the band, but it, it you know, I talk like m- melancholy. I, I think to finish the album, I worked 86 days straight. That's my ultimate record that I think wow. will never be broken. <laughs> um, I want to get on to one very specific musical thing here on one song, which is 1979. 
right? Um, which is you know a fantastic song in, in every regard. It's it's so fantastic. Even with the works with the video, it's so evocative of everything. It's got absolutely iconic riff, right? It's and which is so sort of definitive. You're, where you talked about the, I don't think that chord's not in this song, but you talked about like, chord. pumpkins chord, yeah. The but, but anyway, it has got one of those things which is the thing that makes music so ineffable and beautiful when you find that perfect thing, which is that little vocal sample that <laughs> happened. Oh, yeah. Also, the fact that the verse is so weird that the verse starts on the second chord, the verse vocal. So it's like you're answering something that hasn't happened, which is brilliant, which throws you off. But no, but what I want to talk about is that vocal sample. Yeah. It's, was, how much of an accident was that? I just, how do you find that? Um, it was one of those things where, you know, the, the track we... We, we ended up recording the track in one day. It's a longer story, but we recorded essentially the last day in the studio. Um, Cause it, we, we fought, tried and failed many times. So this was like, okay, it has to be done today. We did it all in the one day. And there's the tracks kind of looping around and playing and playing and playing. I kept hearing this duh, 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 in my head. So uh, I used to use this uh, old Kurzweil sampler. I ran my voice into the sampler and I just literally went blah, blah, blah. I didn't even say anything. If you really listen to it isolated, it almost sounds like I'm singing To Die Young, which is even better. I wish I I'd done that. I thought you were just saying where to me, because I have actually heard it isolated. Um, and uh, it sounds like you were just saying where. And if, if you run it backwards, let's kill the president or something, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, so, but, you know, it was one of those things where I did it, and then Flood said, uh, well, what do you want to do about this? I said, let's just leave it for now, see if it sticks as a placeholder, and we'll fix it later. And then we just for whatever reason, we never did, or we just thought, well, it works. Let's move on to something else because we didn't have any time. That's so it became one of those happy accidents. I mean, I literally took a 58, ran into a sampler. I probably sang it once or twice, and that's it. There's no, There was no more thought. There was no thought to a lyric. It just happened. You know, I think what's the, the beauty of that song, uh, this is going to sound, always sound, everything you say when it's, when, it's, when it's nice about people sounds like bullshit, and it isn't, is, is that it, contains, <laughs> it contains, contains that perfect blend of nostalgia and the future at the yeah. same time. So it's called 1979. It, it's immediately nostalgic. It has a sense of some British 80s feel to it. Sure. And at the same time, it's more futuristic than anything the Pumpkins have done up till that day you know it yeah it's it's a weird combination of kraut rock a little bit of new order um you know some weird dissonant guitar rock and god knows what else was in my head but but in terms of em the emotional tone i was very obsessed at that time with the notion of sentimentality in essence being sentimental for something that never existed and and yeah. wistful for a for something that probably will never happen that was a weird space that i was in at the time and a part of that was being successful and kind of starting to realize that whatever I'd made the rock and roll dream out to be wasn't real. The way the video's set, which is in that sort of, I mean, it's not where you grew up, is it? It's like some sort of out in west ET-like suburb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was well, there a concept that run through the whole album, Billy? Um, well, I did, I did have a general concept, and which is why I referred to it as a concept album, and I referenced The Wall and and, you know, even maybe Ziggy Stardust a little bit. It was the idea of kind of like a, like 24 hours in the life of, of, of whatever, what became known as the zero character, you know, this kind of very nihilistic uh, person in a transitional stage in his life between kind of like, you know, broken home to, you know, a uh, wide-eyed youth to now somebody who was completely cynical and, 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 a, and a nihilist, you know, it was this weird kind of melange of, of things. And I just kept throwing things at the wall and it just kept sticking. And I think we end up writing something like 57 songs for the record, of which we released 57 songs. So that was even that was a whole nother thing. Is it set within a day? That's the idea. That's why it's, the, 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 the records are named. Right? Yeah, the two albums. Flood, being a great producer that he was, he would insist that we would occasionally, like maybe once a week, um, this is back when we had cassettes, pop a cassette in of the rough mixes and drive down Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, which is a very beautiful drive. And just listen to the music and see if the flow, um, what was being said, you know, in a meta overall way was was working. And we kind of tweaked the vision as we went along because, you know, the, the, there's such great dynamic polarity on the record. I mean, there's super, super heavy stuff. And then there's really wistful, almost like 1920s music. It was a, it was a weird thing to it's try to all put together. Take Me Down, was that one of the tracks on? That's James's song, yeah. It's a really pretty song. Yeah, but I've not, you know, that's kind of, you know, very light stuff to, tell me about that concept, that, that story though. Did, it, I'm interested in that one day thing, you know, Aristotle 
said all tragedies have to be, can only, he's laughing at me, he knows I'm such an old theatre queen, uh, that Aristotle said all tragedies have to be completed in one day. You know? Yeah. And I think Shakespeare tried to keep to that. The Greeks kept to that. U Ulysses, James Joyce, that was all in 24 hours. Was that framework? Was that something in your head? Yeah, I, well, I think I, I I'd read a lot of Burroughs and things like that, and I and I was doing a good amount of drugs too, and so you kind of have that that sense of a trip, you know, that like a lot of a lot can happen in an almost transcendental realization way in a very short amount of time if you're kind of willing to go outward into this other space, and I think that's what the record tried to do because you know we changed the the bass tuning of our guitars from E to E flat we worked in a much darker set of tones. Flood was a darker type of producer. Oh. And we kind of, and one, one story that, you know, is worth mentioning is that, you know, with Siamese Dream, Butch wanted this idealized, very shiny, silvery version of the band, which we went along with and we were highly rewarded for, which afforded us to make an album like Melancholy. But then when Flood came and saw the band live, he said, I don't want to record the band that made Siamese Dream. I want to record the band that I saw on stage. And we were like, great, let's do that. Because that was more, that was more our personalities were more rough around the edges and and, and sort of the, the, the melancholy is a more representative of the band's spirit and personality than something like Siamese Dream, which was like a perfect movie or something. But that, that's quite difficult if you're playing everything. <laughs> it's recorded live like that. Well, Sorry. we, no, it's fine. No, I mean, yeah. to their credit, we, we, we would, we worked a lot as a unit to kind of frame up what we were doing. And then it was on me to kind of execute it. So I, I I never want to take away anything, but it's it's a it's a weird thing because I'm not defensive, but I've seen through years where people have almost tried to say that I didn't do what I did, which is also a weird thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, like because you know we're we're in, you know you're part of the Pink Floyd family. It's like you know as a Pink Floyd fan, you can sit there and try to figure out what David did and what Roger did, and you know what I mean. When we did David Gilmore's tour in 2006, and he took Rick along because and. Then you suddenly write, there's this whole converse, endless conversation of a David, Roger, David, Roger, David, Roger. And then you put David and Rick together and you realize, well, hang on. Actually, the musical conversation between that band was between David and Rick. And this is a whole other axis that people weren't really looking at. Yeah. That's, thank you for, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at is the band did have a very specific musical conversation. It was incumbent upon me as the writer and the producer to capture that conversation in a way that would satisfy the market and the producer and stuff like that. Um, and there are plenty of representations of that band in an unfiltered manner. But when you're trying to execute at the highest levels, that was a totally different conversation. And that's where it, become, that's where it became prickly. I just want to focus a little bit on your uh, videos and films and visuals they're so important to you and uh i mean really you know all for the british acts were getting the accolades in the 80s you were certainly getting the accolades in the in the early 90s well, you were kind of in the best time for that weren't you because it's when like computer animation thing was happening and it was when there was still pots of money to spend on videos i can't believe how much money we spent <laughs> tonight, tonight tonight uh i think i think that's the that that's going to be like the first steampunk video ever isn't it the look of that yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's interesting um I never would have thought this whole genre would have grown out of that, not that video, but that, that look. The butterfly wings one, which I, I don't know, is that from, because there was a famous old picture. I think it was on, um, ah, what's this, one of Talking Heads solo albums. You're talking about what? Sebastian Salgado or? The, the Brazil, the guys desperately yeah, he, mined gold in Brazil. Yeah, quick story in reverse was right. um, that director, Sam Bayer had done that before where he, he took great inspiration from a particular artist and then made a video based on that. Well, that, when that video came out, that that photographer was was furious because he felt he, he felt his in, intellectual property had been ripped off and represented in the video, which it had. I mean, it was a direct descendant of those well, yeah, pictures. I actually thought I actually thought it was intercut. I thought there was real stuff there. And no, no, how we many people have you got made up there? No, we hired like a hundred kids to get all in the mud, and and uh, you know the great story of was we they dug this massive pit for us to stand in. And the kids were all around the pit. And then at some point they brought the kids in the pit. But before they brought the kids in the pit, there were technical problems and the cameras kept breaking because it was the hot sun or whatever. And the kids were throwing rocks at us during the video. And so this, 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 this near violent confrontation almost started with me threatening the crowd. And then at some point they asked, this is a true story, they asked, you know, hey, we think it'll be a cool look to have the crowd come in and then kind of film these concert shots. And I said, I'm going to tell you what, though, if anybody comes near me, I'm going to hit them upside the head with this fucking guitar. <laughs> so we had to, like, there's this whole hint of violence through the whole through the whole shoot. Oh, 
many years later you did that to a particular wrestler we could just mention that later but <laughs> oh yes yes <laughs> but yeah because yeah this is that that's a whole hang on let me let me just finish off the video guy yeah, got, the, the, the yeah, video no, thing is is when you're writing this is what i'm interested in is uh, when you're writing are you only thinking orally or are you thinking visually as well and do some of the ideas that come for the videos that you made and make are they happening at the same time in your head no i mean i always have a visual narrative going in my head um but I find that the video medium is always such a great reduction of what I, so yes and no, in the sense that I have a sense, a tableau that I work from, but, but I, I don't think I can afford to make those movies. That's the problem. <laughs> my, my, my vision is always way more sort of dystopic in like a Blade Runner movie or something like that. I, I, no one's going to pay that kind of money for a video. <laughs> and, and so really now we have to talk about this first breakup, you know, I mean, we're not going to go step by step through your entire career. We'll take, we can be here all night, but I am interested in how a band can make, you know, th this huge album and, and like, you know, like Pink Floyd and many others then decide to, they can't stand the sight of each other or it falls apart or they don't want to be with each other anymore. And, and all these kids out there going, what the hell, man? You know, if, if I was in your shoes, I'd be just making more of the same. Yeah. Well, there was the awful think, episode on tour, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, to take it in reverse a little bit, I think no one had ever explained to us the true value of the band. When you're surrounded by people who tell you your only value is what you're selling ticket wise, record wise, t-shirt wise, you know, we didn't realize that the band's true value was in, in its unity. And, you know, like you reference you too, you know, their great success has been the fact that they've held that thing together. Yeah. And so I don't think we realized when we started parting or the things that happened that parted us, what we were actually getting into, what we were throwing away. So when, when Jonathan Melvoin died on tour um, in, uh, in 1996 and Jimmy ended up leaving the band shortly thereafter, I remember having conversations behind the scenes where I said, oh, he'll just leave for a year hopefully he'll clean himself up and he'll come back. I didn't see it as a perm, you know, like a permanent breach. That even if we did put the pieces back together, things would never be the same. And they never were the same. And that's why I say it makes some people uncomfortable, but I said that that band died, you know, that night. That was the end of that band. That band was never the same. Sorry, did you were, change Jimmy halfway through the tour? Yeah, I mean, I want to say this in a sensitive way. We had the same management at the time that Metallica still has. And they'd been through the thing where Cliff Burton, the bassist, had, died in a, trif a horrible accident, terrible accident. Um, and so their advice to us having been through it with Metallica was you got to get right back on the road, which was the worst thing for us. It was like, it, that really sent our heads off in the wrong direction. That probably, as bad as Jonathan's death and Jimmy's leaving was, us going back on tour was the thing that really destroyed the band. When John Entwistle died, uh, the, you know, Pete and Rod, I think Roger had that conversation with Pete and said, you know, we've, we've just got to get someone in, we've got to keep going. Well, or actually, when Keith Moon died, that was when they made the wrong decision. That's when they should have stepped back. Yeah. But anyway. Mean, sorry, back, back to me. Uh, just kidding. Back to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but what I'm trying to say is, is that, because uh, <laughs> I think this gets to the heart of your question, the things that we needed to hold together, we didn't have. And that would have been a moment where we should have taken a step back, figured out what those things were and figured and got them straight or stopped. But we thought that by continuing, that would be the panacea to get us past the moment. And it actually dug us a deeper hole that we, in many ways, never got out of or weren't able to get out of until James came back in 2017 or something. That's which, you know, James and I didn't speak for literally 17 years or something. It's, yeah. it's very crazy the damage that that moment in time did and echoed on. How James was it that that was affecting everyone else, though? If that, that, how was that impacting on you and James, if, if you don't mind me asking? In terms of us continuing or yeah, in terms of you continuing because, because we had a very uh, unhealthy balance with the four of us. So right. like one of those Django games or whatever, Django game, you take the one piece out and now you're in a different power dynamic. And the power dynamic was, was very unhealthy once Jimmy left. But Adore is a beautiful album. There's so many sensitive yeah. songs on that. But right? that, but, but that's, but that's a perfect example. I worked very hard to make this beautiful album about death and, and, and loss and, and recovery. And it ended up with, you know, one of the band members saying this should be a solo album. This isn't a band record. And, you know, it just, it careened it further out. And then it's like, you know, uh, you've been there, you know, you, when you're on the other side of, you know, that, that top, top level success, you know, I'm using a poor analogy, but as you sort of stumble down the other side of the mountain, you're not telling yourself you're stumbling down the other side of the mountain. You're telling yourself you're in a valley and you're about to climb up the other side. 
you know, so you don't, the things that are going wrong, you don't tell yourself that those are permanent situations or things that need real address and real reflection if you really want to sustain this thing for a long time. You know, it's like a bad relationship. You just keep doubling down on the bad relationship. And so by the time we hit 1999, there was nothing left. Um, and then we made this one last record, which was try to try to unify the whole thing one more time. And, and that turned into what's like a like like Fitzcarraldo or something. It was like trying to drag, drag a steamship across a you know, isthmus. Machino, is that which one? Yes, sir. Yeah, that that, that was the, that was the album that really did our heads in. Your answer to all of these issues isn't to run away. It's just to keep working, keep writing. You, you're, you know, yeah, I, I, I consider myself a documentarian, so I'm very comfortable documenting the, the, the unholy mess that I'm witnessing, including, including you know, being very critical of myself. You're writing your biography as you go. You're kind of getting it. Well, to use the Bowie kind of ideology, it, as my impression is a fan, he, he accessed a part of himself that he could only access through character. And through, so through documentary and using character, I was able to get to a more honest place than I would have on my own. Because my, in myself, my natural uh, desire is to withdraw and give up. And that's the way I was raised. It's always going to turn out wrong. There's nothing you can do. Everybody dies. You know, be, be happy that you've got another breath to take. You know, very grim kind of growing up. So my natural tendency is to want to withdraw and say, to hell with this. And um, so my way of fighting through it is to say, well, I'm just going to write this down because maybe somebody will notice what I've been through. Or something. And is the fact that, was it, I mean, it's, I don't know if my chronology is right. Is it sometime around this time that you went out with New Order? Yeah, they call, I remember. I mean, is that, was that was that a way of to like let me just go and be in someone else's band? It kind of turned out that way. Um, that was an interesting experience because I hadn't played in a I hadn't played just as a guitarist since I think 1986, and it was very interesting because there were all these reviews that came out at the time because they were having a bit of a comeback, and people would comment on the fact that you know this massive ego guy was willing to just wear his bucket hat and stand on the side of the stage and play guitar and they and I was actually it was the exact opposite I was very happy to not be in the center of the storm for a half a second we, we're gonna have to talk briefly about your your wrestling obsession <laughs> <laughs> I mean seriously because I just think that well it kind of shows the other side of you I mean listen I do want to mention how great this new album is so I do think it's it's yeah yeah, the, um, yeah Rick Rubin and stuff and it and the Rick Rubin solo stuff I mean listen I know we, we haven't got you much longer yeah. but it's it's no, whatever you want to talk about. What are we going to do? We're going to do wrestling or we're going to do Rick Rubin? What are we going to do? We're going to have to... Do I love that. Rubin. I love that. This <laughs> is one of the greatest dilemmas of all time, wrestling or Rick Rubin. It always <laughs> comes down to this. But this is the perfect seed because when you work with Rick, that's all he wants to talk about is wrestling. Is that right? Okay, so so you... Rick, you, Rick actually at one was an investor in a wrestling league called Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And and, and Rick had put a bunch of money in it with, with a, a famous wrestler uh, manager, Jim Cornette. So Rick actually has ties in wrestling and still watches wrestling. And so when we work together, all he wants to talk about is wrestling. So it's a perfect seed. But this whole thing about between character and theatrical and performance, where because wrestling is the ultimate artifice, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah, I've, I've learned, as strange as it may sound, I've learned a lot from watching professional wrestlers. One story I like to tell is I, I once met this very young wrestler and he was very nervous because it was like he was kind of making a debut. And I watched him go out and the crowd just tore him apart. I mean, they just yelled every horrible thing at him and booed him mercilessly. And he came back in and I felt bad for the kid because he, he was so excited. And I was like, oh, how do you feel? And he's like, I feel great. And I was so shocked because I thought he'd done so poorly. And he goes, no, I got a great reaction. That's that's exactly I just went out and did my job. I And I got it's like this light bulb went off in my head. You know, um, you know, uh, apathy to me is the opposite of love. You know, and, and as musicians, apathy is the absolute worst thing. You know, we've all had those gigs where we're in a great mood and everything sounds great. And you look out in the audience and they, they, they really wish they were on another planet. Bob Dylan once went to see, a, a see the Stones, a particularly lackluster performance. And someone asked him what it was like. And he said, apathy for the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Billy, on this, on this new album, I think there's a lot of positivity it feels to me i mean there's a there's an openness the fact in fact there's less guitar and in many ways that's put the focus more on i i envisaging you without the guitar and i'm seeing right into you a lot more mm. do you think being a settling down and more and having a family has that changed your writing no i think the world falling apart has changed my writing <laughs> <laughs>
But there's a little well, because I would go back to the Rick Rubin one because that that's such a because his his whole thing is it's literally like you've just put new strings on your guitar, and as a listener, you're literally sitting in your lap. You know, that's that's the Rick Rubin thing, isn't it? You're literally enveloped in yeah. the performance. It's right here. To Rick's credit, I, I I was in a really difficult part musically, and I was very depressed. And um, he got wind of somehow that I was working or something, and he called me up and, and said, send me what you're working on. And so I sent him some demos of just acoustic music, and he said, I love it, write some more. And then that's what became the OG Lala record. And um, he really carried me through a, through a time. I think he got me to leave a lot of stuff, you know, like, things that you would normally associate with me with overproduction or too much work or guitar work or whatever, and just got me down to the pure essence of a song. And I think he kind of righted my ship a little bit and put me back on track. And ever since then, I've written a lot of music and recorded a lot of music. So I'm really grateful to Rick. He's probably the greatest listener I've ever, and, and, and he doesn't give his, he doesn't give his attention easily, maybe because he is such a great listener. So you've really got to capture him. And I think he puts that stress and, and and that's why I think some artists have a kind of a polemic experience with Rick, because if you don't capture his attention, he can't fake his way through interest. You actually have to engage him. If he's not engaged, he just, he does, he doesn't sort of get enthusiastic. Like, well, let's try. He just kind of shrugs his shoulders and said, and he leaves you to figure out how to get him interested. It seems to be about him, but what you realize is in many ways, he represents the listener, which is the, I, I'm, I'm, I press play. I want to listen, engage me. And sometimes we get in our own heads and we, you know, we, we love our chord change and we love our production sound and we think that's enough. And, but when we were young, we didn't think like that. We thought we had to go out and kill the world and slay the world. You know, some, I think that's why he works very well with elder artists because he's able to get back to that thing of like, Hey, you've got 10 seconds, 20 seconds here to get this thing across, yeah, get it across right. to me. And then I think it'll work. And I think that's where he was really helpful to me to get me back into that mindset. Did you make some of this album on in lockdown, the new album? No, no, it was all finished before then, but it, it, it strangely anticipates the lockdown somehow. I don't know how, but it just does. Yeah. Yeah. And right, kind of claustrophobia to the music, you know, and the plan mm -hmm. to go out and play eventually. Well, I didn't really make it to be played live because we're in that weird spot where most of the crowd coming to see us expects us to play a certain style of music, which is which is fine with us. We've kind of in our brains kind of settled on being multiple bands at one time. Um, I feel like we have all the freedom in the world. I just think we have to temper our expectations if we want freedom. So we've talked about doing, you know, deep cut club tours and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of created a more positive atmosphere around the band as opposed to what it was for years, which was almost confrontational, which is like, you know, you have what you want and I have what I want and never the twain shall meet. So um, it's it's not been easy to come to that conclusion, but I think it's really freed the band up to just be more progressive as a recording unit. So you're saying you're respecting your legacy more, even though you're making new music? Um, I don't know if respecting the legacy is the right way to put it. I think it's, it's I go back to that night in, in New York in 1996, whatever got destroyed in that in that singular moment, including unfortunately a life, um, we lost some, we lost, we had all this, we had all the freedom in the world and all the ability to world to do what we want. And in that one night, we threw a lot of things away. And so, and through, through the circuitous journey of trying to come back into trust with the public and trying to reacquaint not only us with them, but them with us, you know, we've had to be the ones to sort of extend the olive branch. I think for many years, I expected the audience to come to me. And ultimately I came to the conclusion that I had to come to them, you know, uh, Roger Waters is a perfect example of somebody at some point made peace with a per certain part of his legacy and he was able to go out and promote it at the highest level and mm -hmm. sing the wall tour and twice. Um, I think there's a balance point there. Now it has a lot to do with modernity and how people consume music and how people find music and Spotify and all that type of stuff. But I think we're sort of navigating through new times and I'm okay with the band being sort of three bands at once. Really, thank you so much for Yeah, brilliant. That was a wonderful statement to I, I, I'm also just so great to just talk music with you. Yeah. Thank you. Hear your kids chirping in the background. So sweet. The guy, the guy, I need to say before I get off, I did see that David tour, and I guess it was at the what used to be the Gibson. Uh, All right. Yeah. One, wonderful night I, when uh, Crosby and, and Nash came out to sing. Oh, and right. a, yeah, yeah. Beautiful night. Beautiful night. Yeah, but that was but, but that was so special, be, and basically because of the whole Rick thing, especially because because Rick was there as a sideman. For the first time in his life, he got introduced every night. And to see that outpouring of love from the audience, you know, every night was just, that was just the, 
you know, so special because, you know, he was my father-in-law, my son's thank, grandfather. So. Thanks for coming to see us in <laughs> Chicago and hopefully we're yeah. going to get back over there again at some stage. Yes, I do. Please, yeah, please come, come again. Yeah I, yeah, I saw you guys just push back your tour dates again. I know. Yeah. Well, that's the UK ones. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's so tough at the moment. I'll, yeah. I'll find you if you come back out. That was quite intense. I thought, you know, um, good and really Yeah, but really intense and also and fantastically articulate on you know always up to that. I love that when someone, you know, someone's been through so much and knows exactly what they've been through and can see it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, see, no. I can't. I can't. You just seen. I can't. <laughs> he, he, he's a very thoughtful musician, I think, and that's probably why his work is is like, you know, it's it's. He looks at himself uh, autobiographically, um, and um, in, in you know, an intense way. I, I'm. I was. What am I talking about? I obviously can't look at myself at all. I said, no idea. I'm drained. <laughs> but I'm also, delighted, I'm a delighted man to spend an hour in the company of. Must be said. He was. Actually, I wanted to go on, but I know our time with him was short. You could hear the kids in the background. But um, Yeah, growing up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that long, surely. Uh, <laughs> anyway, listen, thank you for uh, listening today. I want to also thank our producer, Ben Jones, who we haven't thanked yet. But Yes, no, we never thanked Ben. Extremely hard. You can say hello, Ben, can't you? Yes, I can. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Ben, thank you. He's he's, yes, he's thanks. Like, you want to edit this out afterwards. Uh, but um, no, thanks for everyone for keeping us up in the charts and for listening. And uh, we are honestly, our diary in the next few weeks is full of rockers. Is it not, Guy? It is. Uh, I tell you, our dance card is marked. <laughs> and yeah, keep those lovely reviews coming. And uh, so keep it here. It's good night from me, and it's good night from her. <laughs> <laughs>